0: Welcome back to the Workboard Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and the episode you're about to listen to might just be a historical moment for space as a service. Evelyn Lee just published a research piece on valuing space as a service assets in PERE, the private real estate magazine by PEI Media, where she's editor. We've included a link to this article in the description of this podcast episode. You're going to want to share it. Finally, representatives from the valuer community and capital markets are taking a stance on space as a service. And guess what? They expect demand to continue to grow, and properties without a space as a service component will be valued less. In this episode, Evelyn and I dive into the article and her interviews with the experts quoted. She explains why valuing space as a service has been a challenge for commercial real estate, but how this is changing, which is what my last podcast guest, Joanna Turner from Canada Life Asset Management, said is needed. We learn why moving from leases to management agreements makes more sense for landlords and how brand can play a role in driving building valuations. You're going to hear about a new investor profile emerging and whether a new asset class is needed for this fast-growing segment of commercial real estate. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Now put your thinking caps on, drink your preferred concentration juice, and get ready to challenge the status quo. Let's do this. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by fellow American in London, Evelyn Lee. Evelyn is editor at PEI Media, where she spent the last decade covering real estate for the private equity community. Originally working out of the company's New York City headquarters, Evelyn moved to London two years ago, not quite long enough to pick up the British accent yet. (laughs) PEI, or thisispei.com if you want to look them up online has a global portfolio of 12 digital financial information and magazine brands that deliver critical market intelligence for professionals in specialist financial markets such as private equity real estate infrastructure private credit agriculture and compliance they have a diverse team of more than 250 media information and event specialists worldwide and hold 50 plus events globally to help their customers gain unique insights make important business connections and ultimately facilitate better investment decisions. PEI focuses on the alternative and typically illiquid asset classes that have become essential components of many investors' allocation strategies globally. They major in private equity, real estate, private debt, and infrastructure investing, whilst also engaging with emerging new asset classes. Which brings me to the topic of today's episode. Evelyn published an article on space-as-a-service valuations in the firm's private real estate magazine called PERE this was a well-researched and thorough piece titled how much are flex office assets worth now which discusses the growth and demand for space as a service as well as why and how the capital markets need to evolve valuation methods the theme of the season of course welcome to the workbook podcast evelyn
1: Hi, Caleb. thanks for having me
0: uh so glad to have you really i was so excited to to read this article and i think you obviously you've talked to a few different experts on this topic and i'm, I'm just Curious. My first question for you, Evelyn, is sort of, can you give us some background on why space as a service is becoming, or maybe should become, a hot topic for the capital markets?
1: Sure. I I think space as a service has been a hot topic for some time. Um, actually, I think that's largely because of WeWork. At the height of success a few years ago, WeWork expanded very rapidly, became you know the largest office tenant in markets like New York and London. And one of the reasons for that, you know, was because WeWork was seen as a value enhancer for the office properties, whereas a tenant, I you mean, know, a lot of value coming in from, you know, the services and amenities was offering to their, to the end customer, that space. And it was understood that we work got into property investment, largely because they knew that you know the the that the properties where they were tenants were become worth a lot more once they once they were tenants there so you know that that was one aspect of it but you know since covid you know there's been a lot of questions overall about you know the office sector both in terms of what demand is going to look like now that people are expected to work from home you know and work from home more on a long-term basis in some cases and how office properties should be priced now. By extension, there's questions around demand for space as a service, and consequently how properties with a serviced flexible office component will be valued going forward
0: yeah and I think that's been a big topic of of our podcast for some time as well and you know we work certainly we have to give them credit for identifying and connecting brand to to market fit but also the uh product to market fit or or what we like to call service in the space as a service world moving commercial real estate from a static product to a dynamic service is you know what we believe is driving this mm-hmm. But in in the article, I thought it was uh, interesting that you interviewed representatives from uh, the capital markets, the valuer community, and uh, a leading brokerage, Cushman and Wakefield. And so you've got Stefan Theroux, who is the head of BC Partners Real Estate here in London. You've got Richard Calvota from the Altus Group, who does a lot of uh, valuations on real estate assets. And you had Emma Swinerton, who's head of Flex for Cushman and Wakefield, which are big names. And I'm just wondering what was the overall sentiment on the future of spaces of service from these folks?
1: I think the overall sentiment uh, was positive and, you know, they think all of them believe that demand for spaces of service is going to increase kind of over the long, you know, medium to long-term and short-term. There may be, you know, some challenges just given, like I said, you know, a lot of people are still working from home you are seeing people return to the office and, also, returning to you know flexible flexible workspace as well. So you know that that's going to continue to the demand for flex uh, space is going to continue to increase, and so COVID is going to help to you know, accelerate that demand. You know Thurio talked about you know the greater need for flexibility for office users because of the uncertainty that we're currently living in, and you know the expectation that it's going to be an uncertain world for the next couple of years. Given that companies are not yet sure what their space needs are going to be over the long term. So it makes sense not to be locked into a long-term lease at this point. And I thought, you know, Swinnerton her firm, Cushman Wakefield, they published a white paper last week that supported, you know, this Thorio sentiments. You know, the paper highlighted the four key reasons why demand will continue to increase for service office space. Two of those reasons had to do with Companies of all sizes not wanting to commit to long-term leases at the present time. There are two other reasons that were listed in the report. One of them had to do with lease accounting changes since last year. Leases are now listed on balance sheets and long-term leases are considered now considered liabilities. And there's also the potential cost savings that come from more efficient use of space because you're only using the space that you need at the present time rather than committing to, you know, a large floor plate that may not be needed over a long period of time. So overall, yeah, I think, you know, a lot a lot of those reasons do support more demand for spaces of service. And therefore, I think the people I interviewed had you know, a
0: positive outlook overall. Well, that, that's consistent with some of the conversation that's been had for the last uh, couple of years in some of the mm-hmm. predictions. We've seen JLL talking about how the famous stat by 2030, 30, 30% of the overall office market will be space as a service or flex. And, and you know, if we're going to see an acceleration of that, maybe even before because of COVID – I'm just curious. Historically, space as a service has had a negative or at best neutral effect on building valuations. Do you expect that to change?
1: I do, and I think that's partly because of this expected uptick, expected continued uptick in demand during COVID and, and after COVID. You know, I think one of the lasting impacts of COVID is that you know tenants are going to want more flexibility. And also more services and amenities, even after this crisis is, you know, finally over. You know, COVID at least is under control, and I think that you know tenants are going to come to expect that from their buildings. So if an office property doesn't have that kind of flexible service office component, it's going to become less attractive and therefore less valuable as an asset. You know, Rick Calvoda at Altus Group had said that you know. For landlords to incorporate space as a service now to their buildings is a really important way of future proofing their portfolios uh, because, you know, there's an expectation there will be a premium for those types of assets going forward, given a tenant interest and demand for, you know, space as a service and, or let's say office user, you know, interest in space as a service. So, but on the flip side, if landlords don't incorporate some form of space as a service in their building, there will be you know, discounts to those assets. I think I think a really great analogy he used in, in in our interview was you know comparing space as a service to LEED or you know some of the other sustainability certification programs uh, for buildings. So if you look at You know, buildings with LEED certification, they used to carry a slight premium, you know, given those expected cost savings, you know, more efficient buildings were just, you know, have going to help to increase uh, the value of those buildings because it enhanced the, you know, tenant experience. Similarly, you know, that's a similar thing that would be going on with the space of the service. So, you know, and so, you know, looking back at the LEED, LEED kind of certified buildings, Buildings now that don't have that type of certification are likely to be discounted because, you know, that sustainability component is expected and demanded by the market.
0: So, Evelyn, I mean, look, this demand is increasing. We, we know that, but the demand, and hopefully will accelerate post-COVID, uh, that is the expectation. But the demand for spaces as a service has been growing for the past several years. And, uh, you know, you talked about why we work so successful, but there's been this... I don't know, hesitation to to value space as a service. It's been such a big challenge for the industry. Whereas the hotel industry, they've been using an agreed upon valuation methodology for years. So do you have any insight on why it's been such an issue?
1: I think in the past, space as a service operators like WeWork or Regis were you know just leasing space from landlords like any other t- any other tenant. So you know effectively, an office property with a space as a service component was valued like any other traditional office asset. But now that valuation model is now in flux because you know landlords and operators you know that relationship is evolving and it's shifting away from traditional leases to management of profit sharing agreements. I know we'll talk about this um, more in a little bit, but that that's essentially the typical arrangement that you've seen you know, between hotel operators and, and owners for uh, many years now. So I think this adoption of management and profit sharing agreements is a much newer development in the office sector than it has been for hotels. And uh, Swinnerton uh, had estimated, I think, 60 to 80% of operators are currently on leases with landlords. So I yep. think management or profit sharing agreements are new enough for commercial real estate that a lot of people really just haven't thought about valuing space any differently than they would for a typical office asset. I, I think that's certainly the case with a lot of valuers and, you know, but you are seeing that changing. And I think more forward-looking firms uh, like Altus group, you know, they thought about how you, how you look at it. Um, if, you know, there's going to be more and more operators on, profit sharing or management agreements. Well, that's gonna have implications for valuations. Maybe that's not really very common now, but the expectation is it will be. So yeah, I think that's starting to change. I Next, think
0: yeah. I think um what you're what you're saying there is is interesting in 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 regards to the to lease leases and the risk. A lot of the operators would set up those leases in SPVs. And you know, as we're seeing now, I mean even, you know, some landlords that are with some of the well-known brands are getting the keys handed back to them, and the SPVs mm-hmm. are popping. And so mm-hmm. that risk is really becoming uh, valid today. So I can sort of see where you know in the article where Th- Therio says from Altus Group says that valuers will continue to sort of want to discount space as a service at first, but he thinks this is going to change. And I'm assuming that is because um because we'll move to a more of a shared risk model. Like mm-hmm. when, like what what Swinterton, what Emma was saying from Cushman and Wakefield, she sort of expects to see, a shift from leases to management agreements overall. And, and personally, I think that's a good thing. And, and I think that's the future of commercial real estate. But is, is, is what's driving this the landlord's appetite for that shared risk? What, what What's driving – what do you think is going to drive the shift from, from leases to management agreements?
1: Yeah, I think – it's that it's a desire to mitigate risk on on both ends, you know, both for the operator and the landlord. So, you know, right now, I think the operator is shouldering most of that that risk. So, you know, the landlord basically just collects the rent, and the operator will has that exposure to you know the performance of the how well that that flexible space performs. So, you know, whether that's an upside or downside, and you know, with COVID, that's kind of heightened the risk for operators because of, you know, the end users. You know, a lot of them are, you know, not, are, you know, terminating their, you know, their use of the space. They're asking for reductions or, you know, rent reductions or rent holidays because they don't need that space any longer or they're using less space than they had. So, so that, you know, if if the operator's not collecting Money from the end users—they're not going to be able to pay the rent to the landlord, and yeah, you'll see some of them handing you know the keys back to the landlord. So effectively, the lease model isn't—it's perceived as being more s- stable and less risky. But I think in reality, it it isn't, especially during a crisis like we're in now, like during a down market. I think an up market that would be that would a model would hold up, but right now, you know that. The perception that the lease model is less risky and more stable isn't the case.
0: So, so I want to um, I want to hmm. connect some dots on that, Evelyn, because historically the risk was all in the operator, or the perceived risk was all in the operator in a lease arbitrage model. But while while the investor, the capital markets, or the landlord thought that they had a stable and a stable tenant, they it's turned out that this lease model what isn't working in, in this in this downturn. I, I've, I've long thought that lease arbitrage isn't sustainable myself. But, but what we're saying here and what your article talks about, it, it, you one would think that well, we're just going to discount spaces as a service in general because those operators can't make their business work. So why would we engage with them? But, but your article says that, well actually, no, the landlords still want space as a service but they've just discounted the, the lease model that they used to think was stable
1: it's actually less risky for them you know it's less less risky for the operator if you know they're sharing the risk with the, the landlord but it's also less risky for the landlord if they they have a profit sharing or a management agreement instead they will have you know some more control over first of all who who the operator is, I mean, you know, whether you know you have a lease, you're kind of locked in with that that operator as a tenant. guy Thurio had said that you're not happy with the operator because of poor performance, or the reasons you know they have with you know profit sharing management agreement. There's more flexibility to you know, replace that that operator with somebody else, and so that's one way it's less risky for you know someone like you know BC Partners. And he also said uh, as another example that. You know, if you're negotiating terms, it's with a lease. If that's a brand name operator, they'll have the upper hand in negotiations, and that's going to be less the case if they're they have a management agreement or profit share agreement. Mm. I think um, so. I think they're you know wh- whereas you know profit sharing management agreements less risky for the operator. I think some landlords will also see a less risky as a less risky um, alternative to leases. For, you know, some of the reasons I, I mentioned, you know, and that, that's the point I was making, you know, on top of the fact that I think the market is moving toward, you know, more demand for flexible service office in general.
0: That makes sense. Therein lies the big question. If historically valuations of buildings are based on forward looking rent and high credit tenants paying a high rent for a long period of time if we If we take the space as a service element of an asset or even if it's the entire asset, and we shift that to a management agreement or profit sharing, and the terms of those customers using that space are flexible, um, not long term, then does the industry need to evolve valuation methodologies?
1: I, yeah, I do think that the industry will need to evolve valuation methodologies, and that's what's you know currently. Underway, like I said, in you know, Altis Group, you know, Cushman, uh, JLL, and others, they've come up with, you know, ideas about how to value these assets, and they're all slightly different um, in how they approach it. But there's, you know, certainly a common element in that you recognize there's now going to be different income streams. So, you know, typically, the you know, space as a service will be a component of a larger office property. I know there's you know, somehow, sometimes 100% flex properties, but in most cases, it will be part of a larger office property. So you'll have this more you know, stable income stream that comes from, you know, the traditional leases in the building. And then you also have that income stream that comes from the space as a service component, which is potentially more volatile because of the fact that, you know, the leases will be of different lengths than, you know, traditional leases, which are typically longer term. And so, so yeah, so you'll have both of those, you know, factoring into valuations, whereas now it's just considered everything is valued on a long-term lease and it's a, it's a different, there's no separation of the income streams. Um, you can use a uh, Cushman's, Cushman Wakefield's methodology as an example. They have this hybrid approach where they look at both the performance of the uh, trading performance of the asset, you know, is based on occupancy levels, operating costs, capex, and other factors. And then they also capitalize um, two income streams. So the net operating income, which is um, equal to the market rent of the space was on a traditional lease, and then the NOI that exceeds that market rent, and that can is attributed to the value that um, the space as a service component adds to
0: the operation of that space so they're, so they're separating those two out in, in value and those two income streams separately
1: yeah and then they all they all kind of are it's a hybrid because then they both factor into the overall valuation for the property since they're components of a larger asset the you know traditional leased income stream and then the space as a service income stream they both feed into uh ultimately feed into one valuation for the overall property
0: OK, do you think that the, the, the part that looks at the space as a service income stream above the market rent, is that is that expected to sort of look like what the hotel industry looks like?
1: I think that, there, yeah, I think there's definitely it's, it's going to be very similar to I think the hotel industry just based on the fact that, you know, if it's a lot more, a lot more landlord and operator relationships are going to be on a, you know, management agreement like hotels, you know, both the operator and owner are going to be, you know, sharing in that performance of the space. So I think in that, that sense, it'll be treated more similar to hotels. You know, the income stream from that space as a service component will be you know, more volatile like hotels, you know, the demand from the underlying user can change very quickly. So I think yeah, that treatment is I think is pretty similar to valuations for hotels and manager and agreement arrangements.
0: So effectively, the space as a service component in the asset, if it's driving a higher a premium on top of what the market rent would be, then effectively Cushman is suggesting that they would value that component of the asset at, at a higher premium than if it were on a traditional lease, which is interesting. And moving into sort of Richard Kavoda's example of how he would value space as a service, he's talking about separating the revenue out from space as a service footprint in a building to the revenue that's coming in on a traditional lease and actually having two different investor profiles looking at those. So mm-hmm. a, a low risk, traditional real estate investor like a fund would continue investing in, in that stable cash flow from the traditional lease component, whereas a new investor profile might come in and invest in the space as a service component because they have a more a higher risk tolerance for that volatile cash flow, but also potentially have that higher upside that Cushman's referencing. Is that what the article is saying?
1: He talks in the article about two different types of investors. I um, mean, you know, he's speaking from a values perspective, so he's really talking more about well. There's two different income streams here. How would an investor price both of those different types of uh, income streams? So you have the you know the income stream from the traditional lease component, which would be priced um, to reflect relatively lower risk, and then you have the you know space as a service component that in- that cash flow. Would be priced uh, to reflect relatively greater risk so um so then that's how he's talking about really from a pricing perspective but he did acknowledge i guess more from a capital markets perspective that what you could see in the future uh, is that you could see a core investor you know that really wants that stable cash flow to buy a building with a space as a service component, and you know, buy that actual physical asset, and but then you might also have a, a more opportunistic investor also invest uh, in the space as a service component, kind of more like a, as an operating business rather than an asset, and so in that way you could have two different investors with very you know with different uh, risk return profiles investing in the same asset but in different ways
0: so these two uh investor profiles would come together sort of almost partner or or team up to invest in that asset in the two different ways
1: yes that that's something he potentially sees happening um you know he's talking really from pricing but from capital markets yeah that's that's a definitely a
0: a scenario he could see happening so do you think then the industry needs a new asset class created for space as a service
1: I wouldn't say not for the foreseeable future and because I think when you look at a lot of these valuation methodologies you're effectively still comparing the cash flow of the space as a service component to what the cash flow would be if that space is on a traditional lease and you know so you're looking at office you know that goes back to. What if that space was on a traditional lease in the office sector? So it ties back to, you know, another asset class, which in this, you know, which is most typically the office sector. So it's not being treated as a standalone asset class from a valuation perspective at this point in time, at least at this point in time. We'll see, you know, that that continues to evolve. But right now, it's still very much kind of nested within, you know, another sector. So in this case, office. So I don't see that changing in the near
0: future well that's not, certainly not what i wanted to hear um, but, <laughs> sorry um, but i appreciate you being honest uh, with with your opinion no look i think i think it's you're right probably that it's, it's too early for space as a service to have its own asset class i am a believer that as demand grows therefore supply grows when we reach a tipping point in the near future hopefully i think space as a service will justify its own asset class but fair enough so okay well. I guess, final question for you. At the end of the article, you addressed the topic of whether brand will play a role in valuations going forward. And Calvoto is very bullish on this, but can you sort of talk about what he said in your interview and and maybe your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so going back to the comparison we made frequently during this conversation about hotels is, yeah, he compared the branding of space as a service to branding of hotels. You know, and the fact that branding can generally enhance valuation, and particularly as you know, flexible service workspaces become more popular. And, you know, it was interesting when you talked about branding, he was actually speaking more from the point of view as a user, as a space as a service user rather than a valuer. I mean, he said that you know, Altus Group themselves, they are a global firm, and they have many locations around the world. And some of those locations are in you know, flex spaces. So you know, when you're a global firm you, that has to make you know many space decisions, that decision making is a lot easier and a lot more streamlined when you're dealing with just one brand. You know, there's where there's a consistency of experience, and you know what to expect as a user of that space. And I think that that word experience is is important to emphasize. You know, going back to WeWork, that's what made WeWork so powerful as a brand. You know, they created this branded experience that their end users really wanted to be associated with Uh, you know this idea of being part of a community and this cool looking space you know and then having access to services you know that you you wouldn't have if you work from home so I think that's you know as a user you know that's what Calvota was talking about is that you know you have a certain experience that you have in mind that you want to have and you kind of look for the operator that will provide that experience for you so I think, you know, also when we're talking about flex space becoming more in demand and more popular going forward, because that's what tenants are going to want, and along with building up service um, and amenities with that are associated with that, you know, there's going to be more discussion of brands among occupiers, because I think, you know, I think Being Real Estate talked about this core flex model, you know, 70% will be traditional office, but most, a lot of occupiers will want to have maybe 30% kind of in that, Flex space as well. And so, you know, there's gonna occupiers gonna be talking about brands and where you know where they should where they should be, you know, who who they should be going with, which operation they, they should be going with for their flex space needs. I think certain brands will rise to the top as a result of that. It's you know, a lot of it is worth about word of mouth. And so if you have occupiers that are drawn to a particular brand because of the experience it offers, and you know, other occupiers are recommending this to other firms, you know, that'll lead to you know, stronger revenues and better performance for assets, you know, that have a particular space as a service brand operating in that property.
0: So it's it's it really comes back to the customer and and the demand. So if, if you've got an experience that's really delighting customers, then that's where people want to go. And if that's where people are choosing to go, then that's where, the financial performance is, is going to succeed. So it makes sense to me. Thank you so much for all of this insight. And, and look, I think there's loads more we didn't discuss. And so make sure to go check out Evelyn's article online. It's it's in the show notes of, of this podcast. But obviously, before we end, we always do some quick fire questions. And I have a couple of light <laughs> questions for you that I'm going to sure. uh, dive into if that's okay. So totally. uh, you've been covering sort of private real estate for for some time and and this is a space as a service podcast. This is all about the office sector. So I'm going to ask if it's possible and feel free to tell me no. But is it is is there anyone specifically in in the space as a service or office sector in general, who inspires you right now?
1: Yes, I I if I had to single out somebody, I would say it's Isabel Skamama, who's head of AXA Investment Managers Real Assets. Mm. You know, of all the people I've interviewed in the past year, she's left the biggest impression on me, although not directly because of the office sector, but just more for who she is in the industry. And she's one of only two female executives in 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 the top fifty of our global investor list, uh, you know, top investors in private real estate. And she said one of the most uh, memorable quotes I've heard in recent memory and one of the most inspiring quotes, too, which is, you know, daring is a part of my DNA. And she was talking about the importance of taking risk and how taking risks have helped her to get to where she is today. And also the fact that not enough women take risks in their career because so many women feel like they have to have everything be perfect before they can go ahead and do something. But so that that really made her kind of memorable, inspiring on that level. But when you think about who she, you know what organization she's part of that's AXA and I think they've been really very forward looking going back to office on, on office real estate. You know, they are kind of kind of at the forefront of a lot of these hot topics in office right now sustainability, wellness, and going back to space as service, space as service as well. I know there's a their new office tower in Absolutely. London, 22 Bishop, 22 Bishopsgate, which you've also Featured on one of your early episodes, I think is a yep. great example of how forward thinking they are in office. So that building has, you know, sustainable, you know, significant sustainability and wellness components, you know, taking into account, you know, tenants needs and you know, health and well-being. And, you know, they also signed Convene last year as a tenant in the space that was, I believe, Convene's first international location. Yep. So, you know, Convene would effectively provide you know, amenities and services you know, in addition to office space so amenities and services like meeting spaces, IT support, catering. But on top of that, their access was also going to provide an additional amenities and services on top of that. So, really, just, you know, as kind of tenant focused as you can really think about office properties being at the moment. So, I think buildings like that are really cutting edge. And I think you're going to see more of that.
0: I think they're just a little ahead of the curve than everybody yeah. else. Yeah, 22 gate is is absolutely impressive. Um, I'm really thrilled with what Axe is doing there. But um, just going back to what you were saying about Isabella is the fact that she's taking risks. And I, I'm a big believer in challenges, status quo and risk-taking. And you that's know, what sort of at, at the core of entrepreneurialism. And now I'm thinking maybe that should be part of my quickfire questions. What is the biggest risk you've ever taken? So, but but it's not yet. So I'm not going to ask you, so no, don't, feel, don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot yet. Okay, Evelyn, my next question for you, and you are in media, but my question is what other media or podcast or articles what websites do you consume to stay up to date on the latest trends uh, don't tell me you call your colleagues and read the articles <laughs> but is there someone outside of your brand that you or is there someone that you look look to to stay up to date
1: so i don't listen to real estate podcast other than yours uh i usually listen to podcasts to relax it's kind of like an alternative to music for me mm. so i don't like to listen to podcasts that remind me of work um your, your podcast is the exception because it tends to cover interesting topics that I often don't see covered in print or anywhere else so that's why I listen to yours but Thank I you. most I, yeah so it, you know just let's um, so that's why you're you're the your exception but um so I mostly read actually to keep on top of you know trends and, and news hot topics so in terms of the big media outlets I have um, WSJ, Bloomberg, and FT bookmark on my browser, and I look at those every day. You know, they cover the, and that's because they typically cover the biggest news um, in real estate globally. And then I follow a lot of the regional trade publications, mostly on Twitter. So I'll just kind of scroll through the feed and, you know, it's everybody from like a States Gazette, Property Week, Property EU, you know, Real Deal. COSTAR, IREI, IP, um, Pensions, Investments, uh, Nintendi. Nin mm-hmm. And um, then I also read a few email newsletters. So including um, for Polling's newsletter, which is great. And BizNow New York. And I know I have to sign up for BizNow London. I know you showed me one yesterday, very well, the other day. So I got to look at that. And well, then, they shared uh, your article. That was great. I know. I know. So that was awesome. And so I have to sign up for their their London UK newsletter and and also real estate alerts so they have some good stuff sometimes on fundraises and people move so a lot of lot of stuff to keep track of
0: my final question for you and this is probably always my favorite question because i like to travel but and i know you just came back from a trip yourself but where is your favorite holiday destination um it's a
1: it's a tie between spain and Italy. And every time I go to one of those countries, I say this is my favorite destination. And then I go to the <laughs> other country, I say, "Well, this is my favorite destination." Um, and I think it's a it's a combination of well, their food is outstanding, and you know, there's just so much variety to what you can eat in both their cuisines, and but also just you know, there's so many locate, you know, so many different places to visit, and just you know, so much you know, rich history in both of those countries. And great weather, which never hurts. So, I would say those countries, especially while I'm living in London, I'm going to be hitting those two countries the most. But, certainly, want to see all of Europe uh, hit all those countries as well. But, yeah, those are Italy and Spain are the ones I keep going back to.
0: Yeah, uh, the big, great, great spots. I mean, great, great choices there. I, I love Italy, it's one of those places for me. I mean, I love Spain too, but Italy is like one of those places you can go every year to a different location had the greatest time but when i came to to london back in 2013 i felt like a kid in a candy store because travel over here compared to living in the us is you know so cost effective and and it's obviously easy just to pop over somewhere for a weekend so uh, I was just like going to town and visiting. Oh, totally! So, yeah, as soon as as soon as we're able to travel 100% freely again, I do highly encourage you. If you need some tips, let me know. I've got I've got a a long list of places that I recommend for you. But Evelyn, again, really really appreciate you coming on board. I think your article is going to end up being a historical moment because you know we needed the, the space as a service industry, I think needed the valuers and the capital markets to start talking about valuations and start looking positively on what's happening with the customer demand. And, and, and now that they are, I just sort of see this as a snowball effect. And there's still loads of questions, I think. So I'm sure there's going to be some ongoing analysis and discussion, but I really appreciate you coming on and and diving into your article. Again, Go to the show notes if, if you're listening today. Go go read the article because uh, it's got some really good insight in it. So Evelyn, thank you for coming on today. I Really appreciate it. Where should people find you on social media?
1: If you you can find me on Twitter, you know, so my handle is you know Evelyn E V L Y N underscore P E R E P E R E, and you can also find me on LinkedIn, Evelyn Lee, editor at P E R E.
0: Excellent. Well, again, many thanks. I look forward to catching up for a coffee in the near future here in London and looking forward to more discussion around spaces of service.
1: You know, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, it's, I think there'll be a lot more discussion to
0: come. Well, that's brilliant. I look forward to that. And for those of you tuning in today, thank you. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and remember. Fortune favors the bold. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com.
1: You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at com, or Brett at com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.